This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Shannon Malloy, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. Did I pronounce your name properly? Is it Malloy? Yep. 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 Great. Okay. Um, So Shannon is a best-selling author. He's also been with us before on Better Reading. Um, He's the best, well, it was for um, your last book, right? Um, And uh, it was called 14. Yes. Yeah, we talked about it quite a lot, didn't we, about you growing up in Queensland? Three years ago. Was it three years ago? It was pre-COVID. Yeah, yeah. Was it pre-COVID? Yeah, just, yeah. just pre-COVID. Yeah, there you go. Um, as well as being a best-selling author, Shannon is an award-winning journalist. Um, he His memoir, 14, was turned into a sellout hit stage production and is now being adapted for the screen. Wow, and congratulations. Thank you. Surreal. It still doesn't feel real. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 what you get for being so brave, you know. Um, he's now written his second book, um, which has been declared a genre-defying feat of storytelling. It's part memoir, part investigation into the taboo topic of male child sexual abuse. It's called You Made Me This Way. It's a very personal book. It's driven by Shannon's own experience of having been molested as a young boy and he's grappling to understand how this has shaped him. It is a harrowing and heartbreaking yet ultimately hopeful book about one of our society's deepest shames. Do you know, it's a topic that makes me so angry because I feel that in a way it's similar to rape, that you are guilty even as a child, you are guilty until proven innocent, that you make yeah. this up. Yeah. Mm. It's, there's a reason that so few cases are prosecuted, uh, mm. and it's because it's, it's extremely difficult to get a conviction for child sex abuse. It tends to be that people don't come forward for many years, and so it's, it's very easy for defence lawyers to poke holes in stories, to confuse witnesses, uh, and and to sow doubt in the minds of of juries. Uh, in fact, all of the men that I spoke to for this book, uh, no no one has had a successful criminal prosecution bar one, uh, and that was very difficult and very hard fought. So I, I'm also mad that not only that so many children are abused, but that so many perpetrators get away with it. And we know from research, keep doing it to other kids. And as this book chronicles, uh, and as the title alludes to, being abused as a child almost always destroys that person's life. Mm, mm, Absolutely. It destroys that person's life on so many levels. Like there's the physical abuse, yes, there's that. 
But the emotional abuse, when you're trying to make sense of the world, when you're trying to make sense of who you are, that to me is the greatest crime of all, to do that to a child. Absolutely. You rob them of their innocence and you you sort of take the path that they were on, which was, you know, full of hope and, and optimism and excitement about the future, and you throw them on a completely different one that is full of shame and guilt and confusion. Uh, and what, what that sows, particularly in men, uh, is, is horrible. Uh, you know, shame can lead to alcohol and drug abuse. It can lead to higher instances of criminality. Uh, we know that there's a link between trauma and instances of family violence. It's not an excuse, it's an explanation. Uh, and and suicide and, and chronic mental health issues, which often go untreated. So it's, you know, I, I spoke to one expert and he he said that, you know, it's it's up there with murdering a child because the outcomes are so horrific. It's one of the worst things that you can do to somebody. Uh, and and there's very little justice. For men, uh, they quite often don't tell anybody for their entire life. In fact, there's a man in this book I spoke to, and I'm the first person he told that he was abused from the age of 13. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's. Do you know horrendous. what? It, it is so horrendous. Do you know what really gets me? I was reading, you know, and, and, and you could probably read about child abuse every single day, but this was a little while ago and it was a school. It was a boarding school in Sydney, and I can't remember the name, which is probably good for this podcast. And those little boys were so little, and I just thought it's doubly criminal when you are meant to be the carer and the protector mm. of that child. You know, where is your fiduciary care? Uh, I, that, to me, is so shocking. Awful. And one thing I didn't realise, you know, there's institutional abuse that happens or or has happened <clears throat> in schools or religious settings, uh, but, but other abuse in almost all cases it's not some faceless boogeyman who strikes out of the darkness who you don't know. It's almost always someone that the child knows, someone that the family knows, and someone that they love and trust. It could be an uncle or a cousin. It could be, you know, the neighbour who sometimes babysits. It could be a friend's father. And that, for a child, really distorts what they think they know about trust and love for the rest mm. of their life. And that's just one little nugget of consequence that comes from this awful thing and so you start to explore this topic as I as I did over the better part of a year and you realize just how how insidious this is and how much it fundamentally changes someone's life um and so yeah I'm I'm angry I'm sad Mm. uh, I'm all of those things and the Mm. really terrifying thing is how common this is well and how that's right and how we take it we, as we said earlier at the beginning of the podcast, how I, I, I just don't know that people see it as the crime that it is. And again, I will bring it back to the rape of women mainly. You know, it's I'm sure those statistics are very similar, you know, um, yeah. and it's a horrendous process for people to go through, particularly a child. Why is it, do you think, culturally we let people get away with this? Why? I think it's it's such an ugly thing that perhaps 
because it's too hard or for our own sort of self-preservation, we we can't look at it. And I've been at dinner parties for the 18 months since I signed this book deal and people ask, what's your next book about? And when I say child sexual abuse, the conversation stops and it shifts onto something else because mm. it's so awful to imagine, mm. you know, innocent children mm. being being corrupted in this way. It's easier to look away and that's what we do. Every now and then this comes up in, you know, a high-profile case or something like that and we're forced to look at it and it's an unnerving feeling. And when you start to confront the statistics that it's not a stranger, it's someone you know, that it's one in five kids and you start to think, hang on, I know, you know, I've got aunts, uh, I've got nieces and nephews and mates with kids and that's a big number and so I don't want to confront the one in five statistic. And then you look at how few people are uh, uh, prosecuted for this. It's horrifying and it's terrifying and so it's easier to look away. Mm. But I'm Unfortunately, the consequences of that are that these injustices continue, not just the abuse itself, but our horribly broken justice system uh, and horrendous, horrendously low levels of support for children, but also for adult survivors. All of those things continue because we don't we don't confront it. And I mm. get it. It's, you know, I okay. felt awful at the end of this process, um, but I think we have to we can't look away any longer. Mm. Is it? Is it? So it's about. Is it about power? Is it like? Help me try and understand it. Is it about power? I mean, because there are many people in powerful positions that do this. But then you were saying there are friends, there are uncles, there are babysitters, there are whatever. Tell me. Tell me what you know about that, and what you've learned. So I touched on it a little bit in the book, but there are different categories of abusers, if you like, mm. and they've been devised by clinicians and researchers that kind of identify that there are different motivations, if you like, for someone to abuse a child. In in some cases, it's purely opportunistic. It's someone with a, you know, a perverted urge that is in the right place or right time for them mm -hmm. uh, and commits the abuse. Then there are people that are habitual pedophiles and that's kind of the category that we all know. Then there's another category, and it's the one that that my experience fits in, where it's it's the the perpetrator is a child, is a juvenile themselves, but is in a position of power uh, mm. where where they can do something controlling or uh, you know fulfilling to to their particular chemistry makeup uh, mm. in their brain. So there are different types of abusers, which I think makes the issue even more confronting. Mm. Um, you know, to, to imagine that there's someone who will just on a whim abuse a child and probably then never do it again. Like there are cases mm. like that yeah, uh, right. through to, you know, the ones that that cannot ever not abuse for whatever mm. reason. Mm. Um, so that's that's really confronting as well, digging into that motivation. And, and as a storyteller, as a journalist, I always try and put myself in someone's shoes I just couldn't possibly imagine mm. thinking that way having having that wiring it's awful absolutely awful. so do you want to talk to us a little bit about your experience yeah so from the age of five uh for several years on and off uh I was molested by a, a friend who was an older boy he was three years older than me um and for a long time I, how old I, were you 
I was five. So it started five. when I was five. He was, he was yep. eight. Um, wow. He was, he I was, was probably about 12. Mm-hmm. So he, he lived down the road. I grew up in a small town. All the kids sort of congregated on this, the basketball court, which was next to my house. And that's how we interacted for the first time. Uh, and it happened very quickly after that. For a long time, I sort of, I just hid it away. I never told anyone. I never spoke about it. I very rarely thought about it. I tried not to think about it. Can you remember why? I think just from the very first time, which I vividly recall in full colour detail, Mm -hmm. um, I felt like I was doing something horribly wrong. I felt sick. Uh, I felt like I was sick. Um, but just shame, and it's it's a theme that I I go over many many times in the book. This feeling of shame and and how toxic shame can be, particularly for men, uh, and and that's what I felt from the age of five. You know, I went from not really having a care in the world to suddenly worrying about myself and all these things that were obviously wrong with me uh, for for the rest of my life until mm-hmm. I went to therapy in my late 20s and for the very first time in my life said out loud what had happened to me and I didn't think it was abuse I sort of just thought you know I was a kid he was a kid he was older and and he sort of was in the position of power there was a very imbalanced power structure there but I just thought you know it was kids doing horrible things that are wrong Am and was I, he, would you call that grooming as well? Was that what he was doing to there you? Were, there were elements of that. Uh, yeah. You know, he, would, he would give me toys. He would let me play mm. with his video mm. game, which nobody nobody had a, a video game system in my town at that stage. Um, and so there was sort of grooming and, re- and reward elements to it as well that, that many of the men I've spoken to for this book know. Uh, and speaking to them, I identified a lot of that and, and thought about things in a new way. Um, but it didn't, I think because of how how this boy did it and what and what he did and the you know threats he would make for me to keep it secret and him telling me that everyone would think I was I was the wrong one, you know, there's there's definitely elements of that um that kind of yeah, control, grooming and control and, and grooming is control, but it's mm. a subtle way of gaining control with you know reward or intimidation or whatever. Um, but I didn't, it's not until I went to therapy in my late 20s that that I kind of thought about this as potentially abuse. And even though my case, in a criminal sense, probably wouldn't have been viewed as abuse because of the similarities in age, um, in, a, in a clinical setting, because of how I felt, because of how it was conducted, my, my therapist sort of called it abuse. And it was the first time I'd had that label put on it. And and from there began the very long process of me unpacking this horrible stuff and and uh, and dealing with it and realizing how it just changed my life in so many ways, um, some small, most very big, and and all uh, quite detrimental. Mm. Talk to me about that. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, so, yeah, spending spending my entire childhood and adolescence with this sort of self-loathing about, you know, what had happened, what was continuing to happen until I was about 12, um, feeling broken, uh, feeling wrong. Then, you know, in my middle adolescence, coming to terms with the fact that I'm gay and, and feeling like a, an intense hatred about myself uh, for that, wondering if I was gay because of what happened to me, which is a whole destructive kettle of fish in itself, mm. um, having a really warped view of what love is or what intimacy is, um, extreme self-doubt, but mm. but at its core, shame, just a huge mm. amount of shame about myself. And that, you know, as I unpack in the book, as I, as I realise talking to men who all share this common shame monster um, can can sort of spread itself through your body like a cancer and, and infect how you think about yourself, how you think about the world, how you think about, you know, relationships, including the bad ones that you, you know, quite often find yourself in mm-hmm. time and time again. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's had a huge effect on my life and it it has taken a great deal of time and energy uh, and, mo- and money to address those issues and start to feel like I'm, I'm healing. Mm-hmm. So you've you've done that. You've written a book, which again was a memoir, and equally as heartfelt and telling in a way. And you gave a lot of yourself in fourteen. <laughs> now most people would want to go back, Shannon, and probably just you know curl up on the lounge in the fetal position and just think, let's see how this plays out. Um, but not you. You then decide to write this book um, yes. <laughs> called You Made Me This Way, which in a way is as powerful as the first. So talk to me about the beginning of that process and what brought you to want to write about it and what you have gotten or what have you learned or what, you know, has it given you anything um, yeah. to write it? So the idea itself kind of started about four or five years ago when I interviewed a guy who was sexually abused as a boy and is is now an ambassador for a a charity that works to protect children, vulnerable children and and fund support services and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And he's the second person that I said all of this out loud to. I don't know why, like a total stranger, uh, you know, the worst part of myself, the hardest part of myself to confront. And I, I felt something in that moment talking to him about his horrendous experiences and how they've shaped his life. Uh, I felt comfortable enough to tell him a little bit about myself. And we, as a result of that, became 
friends and spoke a lot and caught up a lot. And, and then I, I, I realised more and more of the similarities between us. What happened to us is very different. His was, you know, an adult that, that abused him at a very young age. Uh, it was it was relatively sort of short term uh, for sort of just miraculous reasons. His family moved away, and um, but a lot of the the things that he felt uh, were very very similar. And I realised that there are all these common experiences. You know, men these men can come from rich families, poor families, the city, the country. You know, a white background, a multicultural background. They can have every opportunity in the world or none whatsoever. And we we all end up in almost exactly the same place in adulthood. And I thought that was something worth exploring. I realised that it hasn't really been explored before. And the thing that kind of was the deal clincher for me was talking to these men, looking around, mostly as I sought to understand myself better, but looking around and realising that when you decide that, okay, I want to deal with this, I want to talk to someone, there is no one to talk to. There's one support service for male mm. adult survivors of child sexual abuse, and it's community-run and, and volunteer-led with minimal funding, and they have a wait list of 700 men waiting Ugh. to speak to someone. There are no other services. Uh, there's, there's very little in way of specialised support, uh, and that's why most men never say a word. And so I thought I can write a book that, you know, selfishly helps me understand myself a bit better and, and speed up my healing process, but also, you know, is is there for other men who've experienced this. It's there for women who, you know, love men who've experienced this, whether it be their husbands or their sons or brothers or uncles. Mm. Um, but also it's just there as society to to read it and hopefully think, Oh my God, we can't we can't keep letting this happen. We need to demand reform of the justice system. We need to demand reform of our mental health care system. We need to demand specialist support services for male survivors. And it's it's time that we stop ignoring it. So that's kind of that's why I wanted to write the book um, for those reasons. And it was horrible. <laughs> I really. I really disliked writing this book. Um, I loved meeting the men. They were just so incredible. How did you find them? In a lot of different ways, in, in mm. a couple in support groups. Uh, a couple, there's a few forums online where men gather to talk about what happened to them. Um, there's a few mental health forums where men mm -hmm. sort of talk about the, the unique experience of, of men and, and mental illness. Uh, and so I just started putting out feelers uh, to see if anyone would be willing to talk to me. And the fellow that I, I met in that interview four or five years ago uh, also took part in the book. So it's it's a number of men from very different backgrounds. Uh, and then I've also spoken to clinicians and researchers and lawyers uh, to, to sort of flesh it out from there. So it's sort of my story and me discovering myself. And then along the way, meeting mm. these men, meeting these experts and, and sort of seeing where we end up. Um, yeah, so so that's that's I, how I got. It. You know, I'm I'm going to ask you a question, and I I don't know the answer, and I don't know if you will either. But you know, the more I'm reading, just in general media, I'm reading more and more about male suicide. You know, adult suicide, yeah. um, and it's so sad and it's so tragic, and often people don't see it coming. No, and, and I they, wonder. They have no idea why after yeah. these men have gone. 
men are th- mm. in, in this country men are three times more likely to kill mm. themselves you know nine nine people today will take their own lives based on data um six of them or seven of them will be men uh and that's that's horrendous uh, is there know- a correlation Yes, uh, yes, there is. Men, men who are sexually abused as boys are significantly more likely to to attempt suicide and and to take their own lives. Um, but I'm, you know, there's probably myriad causes for for male suicide uh, that I think all come back to a sense of shame. You know, they're they they feel shame maybe because they've been abused, or they feel shame because of their upbringing, or you know their their place in society. Mm. Um, their shame. They feel shame because of you know a dependence on drugs, drugs or alcohol. Mm. Um, it's a whole whole range of causes. But to be able to definitively say is difficult because the majority of men who have committed suicide, we know from research, have never sought help. Mm. So they they're less likely to to get help when they need it. Those mm-hmm. who do reach out, you know, we have all these great awareness days every year about it's okay to not be okay. Please reach out mm-hmm. for help. When when you feel like you can, where do you go? There, mm-hmm. you know, you can't get in to see a psychologist for mm-hmm. nine months at the moment. When you do, it's expensive and very little of it is is rebated by uh, rebated by Medicare. Uh, there are few specialist services for men, and men have a very unique experience with mental illness, and it requires a very special treatment, type of treatment. It's not one size fits all. So I think that's why we have a real problem with with men in this country. And for all the money we're spending, for all the the awareness we've created, for all the stigma breaking, that number has not changed Mm. in in a decade. Do you know, um, a few years ago now, I think it was... um... Julia Gillard, there was a was there an inquest into child sex sexual abuse, not just yeah. in yeah, remember yeah, that? Yeah, so Julia Gillard kicked off the mm. Royal Commission into institutionalized. That's abuse. what it was. Yeah. Most most of the people that came forward were men. Mm-hmm. And I remember um it was uh, a, a man who was talking about his experience. I heard this on the radio, um, at a boys mm, town. What were they called? Yeah. yeah, like you know, where where wayward um, young men would go, or deserted young young boys would go. And I remember hearing this in the car. He told of the abuse that had happened to him. And when I got out of my well, I was in such terrible shock. But also, I felt at this age that I've heard just about everything, you know. And his story. I'd never heard. I had no. I I couldn't even comprehend how another human can do that to a person. But what was most shocking, and I couldn't let go of this, is that if you're walking down the street and you know, I don't know, you accidentally trip someone over or somebody hits you in the face or whatever, that is absolutely a criminal case, and people can go to jail, right? Yet what happened to this man? those people walked, there was not even an inquiry at the time. And that's what I don't understand about it. It's not seen as a crime. It's, yeah, it's awful. And 
and a, a number of the men I spoke to that tried to to seek justice, you know, they went to the police and were told, mm. "This is too hard. You don't want to open open this mm. Pandora's box, mate." Or, you know, the parents were told, "This will this will destroy your life more than it already has," or it's it's been too long. You left it too late. Uh, or they do prosecute. They they bring charges. It goes to court, and the jury. The jury can't be convinced beyond reasonable doubt because it's been so long. Because the the mm. barrister, defence barrister, grilled this survivor, you know, to the point of tears, and so just enough doubt that that mm. they get away with it. It happens time and time again. Mm. And court, court, you said it perfectly at the at the beginning. A male survivor. Or any any survivor really, but the the men I spoke to—that's sort of the the realm I'm looking at it through. They go into court as the guilty party. It's such mm-hmm. an adversarial system that is just like it's horrible. It's a horrible mm. experience, right down to the design of the courthouse. You know, you're in the holding room mm. next to the person that abused you. Mm. What sort of what sort of system is that? You can't have a support. You know, you're not you're discouraged from having a support person in court. You're you're yelled at by the defence barrister. You're called a liar or promiscuous or money hungry or whatever else. That's why people get away with it. Because mm. why on earth would you try and bring charges when the outcome is almost predetermined, and mm. that experience is re-traumatizing? So we we need to demand that the justice system is overhauled and that we do often really simple things to make it a less traumatising experience for these people that have suffered enough already. Do you think, and I'm, I'm just thinking about this now, do you think it's worth, and maybe this is happening and I just don't know about it, but do you think it's worth educating our children to speak up sooner? Yes, yeah. and it's not happening. Um, the Denise and Bruce Morecambe, uh, Daniel Morecambe's yeah. parents, uh, yeah. have have done a huge amount of work in this area, particularly in Queensland, where they're from. That's where their, their mm. sort of heart is in this And that's where tragic, their son tragic case. Yeah, went, yes. went missing. So yep. they do a lot of education in schools about uh about what's what's sort of appropriate behaviour, what's not, and how to tell someone if it's happening mm. to you. Because again, you know, these kids feel shame. But the other really complicating factor, which I spoke about before, is that the perpetrator is probably someone in their life. And they mm-hmm. don't want to get Uncle Tim in trouble or neighbor Joe or their soccer coach or what or, or dad's best mate. You know, they don't wanna they don't wanna rock the boat. They don't they probably mm-hmm. like this person as well. So they don't mm-hmm. wanna, you know, get them in trouble. They're mm-hmm. that's how they look at the world, you know. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of uh work that's being done by the Morecams particularly. But across the board, that's it. We don't talk about kids' bodies about what's happening to them and why they feel this way, about what's right and what's wrong, about about the, the bad things that adults mm. sometimes do. We're talking to young girls they about it more than we are. We, we, yeah, aren't yes. we? You know, and that has yes. to that has to it's roll still not early enough. No. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, that's what a few of the experts that I spoke to for this book said, you know, we need to get better at prosecuting it to get these perpetrators off the streets and mm. give and give adult survivors some form of justice. But to stop this problem, we need to educate kids, and we also need to educate parents about the warning signs about about 
how to, how to sense when something's going on about the red flags to look for and then also how to uh, at, at the very first possible uh, opportunity get treatment for a child who's been abused because you know the book the book title is scary and and my experience and the experience of experiences of men are scary but the one element of hope that I really want to drive home uh particularly there are many but the one the one hopeful thing is that research shows overwhelmingly that early intervention for children that have been abused is very successful the earlier you get them into appropriate treatment and and provide them with extensive support the more uh, likely it is that they'll have great outcomes in life this thing won't haunt them it's when kids don't feel like they can say anything and they live with this shame and secrecy that we see these really horrendous outcomes in in adulthood so there's a number of things we can do and we can do them immediately uh, but educating kids is a big one mm. We're out of time. Um, thank you so much, um, Shannon. You really, you write beautifully. It's heartfelt. It's, you know, it's so beautiful to read, even though it's a difficult topic. But, you know, we've got to face it. You know, we've got to be yeah. reading books like this. We've got to be learning. Um, yeah, so thank you so much. Thank you for thank sharing you. your story I, with I us. I said before I hated writing this book, but I, I'm so happy with it now and I'm so proud of it. And it is, you know, it's hard, but it's, it's an important read and and there are moments of hope in there as well, just to not scare everyone totally off. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. It's really worth reading. Yeah, no, but I agree with you. Thank you so much and lovely to chat to you. Thanks, Shannon. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.